everyone, welcome to another edition of the Dan and Joe Super Show. As always, I'm Dan. And I'm Joe. Well, Joe, before the season started, I'd flip-flop between who I'd picked for national champion. I was a little bit more certain about my one, a little bit off the wall pick, who's turning out to be really good, um, and that was Florida State. I had Florida State winning the national championship, and this one, that one looks good right now. Now, my second pick, and, and I looked at this, I did this one based on the way I played last year and kind of the history of the program, looks to be quite bad right now. And I think you can all but say that I was wrong on it, and that was Tennessee. Uh, Joe, they just had, I think, the worst loss that Tennessee football has had maybe the entire Josh Heupel era. Um, there's been a lot of hype with Heupel. It's a great season last year. I still think that they deserve uh, – to be looked at, you know, uh, for a college football playoff pass. People were talking about Alabama deserving to get in. I thought Tennessee was definitely worthy to get in. I thought that Hinton Hooker should have been invited to the Heisman Trophy ceremony. But they had a great season. And this year, I mean, Joe Milton is one of the most physically gifted quarterbacks we've ever seen. Uh, a lot of people talked about his inconsistency and the fact that while he has been the starting quarterback at three different schools, he's also been benched at three different schools. And he's been starting quarterback at three different schools. That's usually not a good thing. Um, they went into where Billy Napier's team had looked truly pathetic for this season. I mean, they were terribly, awfully coached against Utah. Not that Utah was a bad team, but Utah, of course, was um, without their starting quarterback. And uh, Cam Rising, who's an excellent player, who is, is a big deal for Utah and really is, is a big factor in, in where they can go this year. He wasn't playing this game, and they got beat resoundingly at Utah by the backup quarterbacks kind of sharing roles in that game and in a very disjointed manner. And, you know, you had the issue with the two number threes on the field, a lot of player clock management and play calls by Billy Napier, and with the nature of the Florida fan base, which is they're a very aggressive, entitled, angry, angry fan base, it was starting to look bad for them. Tennessee had lost 20, uh, it was 19 consecutive years, no, 20 consecutive years at Florida. The last time they had won down the swap was back in 2003. And Joe, yeah. if they didn't win this game, they were going to approach the Auburn and Baton Rouge issues where Auburn hadn't won at LSU from 1999 all the way to 2001 when Bo Nix has a magical game and you got the W for them. So this was a lot of stakes on this game. Tennessee was looking to be a clearly a much better football team, had a great defense. The offense hadn't really clicked the way you thought, and there was some there, there were some signs that maybe this wouldn't go that way. And Raymond Phoenix an excellent game, just jumps all over Tennessee, gets up, I believe, 24 to 6, 27 to 6 in the first half, and Florida ends up winning the game convincingly. Yeah, I mean, the way I appraise it, um, building off of what you said, I look at it for Florida. I'm just stunned that they were able to win the game at all, but especially the way they won it, like by that fashion. Um, I think that the Billy Napier tenure is kind of quickly becoming one of the more puzzling up and down um, coaching tenures we've ever seen the last few years. I mean, it's got to be frustrating to the Florida fans where this is kind of like that Utah win last year. You have an exciting win. A surprising win. You think that's going to galvanize you, but who knows, you know, with the way they looked the first couple of weeks of the season. You got that Jekyll and Hyde nature 
And then on the flip side, I think that this was kind of a potential regression for Tennessee as a program, losing a game like this against a big rival. I think this is a game they needed to win the way Florida looked earlier in the season. And you kind of just have some demons that are still out there if you're a Tennessee and Swamp. Well, Joe, I thought this was a really important game for Heifel to really announce for real that Tennessee's back. Not that we had a great season, but that we're going to continue to have great seasons. And you need to beat your rival, one of your main rivals, to do it. And last year, their win over Florida was such a big deal because they had had a big win losing streak against Florida. And I thought that was a real jump starter of their season last year. And this is one that they needed. The SEC was down. SEC East and the SEC West, really outside of Georgia, has looked pretty poor this year. And so this would have been a great way to establish yourself as the second-best team in the East and one that maybe has the best chance at Georgia with Georgia coming up to play them up at Rocky Top, which is such a difficult place to play. And Joe just came out flat. Uh, Joe Milton didn't look very sharp. I don't think the game plan was very good. I mean, they're not giving him a lot of chances to throw it down the field. And the weirdest thing to me was that Tennessee couldn't run the football. They looked so good, like they had two of the better running backs and Reggie Small um, and, you know, to ability to run. They had, you know, a solid backfield right there. And I thought that was going to help Joe Milton out a lot because usually run game and defense travels. Unfortunately for Tennessee, they looked good in the run game and defense, and neither one of them traveled to Florida. And they got beat on both sides of the line of scrimmage. They looked like the less physical team, and they really just – you know, got beat up and down by what I thought before this game was a poor Florida team. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I think that you felt like uh, Tennessee coming into the season would have a chance to uh, to beat Georgia, um, especially the way Georgia, you know, looked against South Carolina, you know, in the earlier game, you, you thought, you know, who knows? I, I still, you know, expected Georgia to win the East, but felt like, you know, Tennessee had a shot. And now, you know, this is uh, – and this makes you think that they're they're far from it, obviously, right now. And I think that I was also disappointed overall uh, because Joe Milton, for me, was a fascinating player coming into the season because he kind of represented uh, something that's a lost art in college football where you kind of get to see a guy that is set, you know, as the backup on the sidelines for a year or two and then takes over for a successful starter and nowadays, you know, we just have transfers coming in like free agents. So I thought it was really cool to see Milton kind of be as the next the next man up. And I, so I hate that it hasn't worked out as well so far. I mean, too, I, I was really excited about him. I looked at him a lot as like T. Martin. That was my like parallel. You know, Hinton Hooker was like Peyton Manning, the guy who almost won the Heisman Trophy, who had incredible numbers and really got the excitement and the fan base going. But the next season is the year they won the national championship with T. Martin, who sat on the bench behind Hayden for, I think, three years and didn't start until he was a senior. And then he had the season where they won the national championship. That's kind of what I saw out of Joe Milton this year. And now, I mean, that is – they got, like, the smallest chance ever to still have that that on the horizon. And this was a really painful loss for him. But on the flip side, an excellent win for Billy Napier. And now I think the Brew Burners and – you know, the hangman's noose is being hung up a little bit and he can get up and he can do his job. And I, you know, I didn't necessarily believe he would get fired this season, but I did think the heat would be turned up a lot. And now I think if you're him, if you can go out and you can win seven or eight games, you have like, I think the number three recruiting class in America this year, maybe you have the chance to build momentum. I'm not saying that he can do that, 
But uh, interestingly enough, Urban Meyer referenced it. And if you watch the Swamp Kings documentary they have on Netflix that goes into the Florida dynasty from 2005 to 2009, or the 2010, the years that Urban Meyer were there, um, he had a game like this. I think it was in his his first, his second season where it was basically said, if you don't win this game, you're going to get fired. Now, I want to say it was even actually against Florida down in the Swamp. And or it might have been at four against Florida at home, and he was able to get the win against Steve Spurrier. And uh, it, no, it was against South Carolina. That's what it was. It was the first time that South Carolina was coaching at the Swamp uh, as the South Carolina coach. And basically, it was like if you don't win this game, we lose to Steve Spurrier. We're going to get rid of you. And he was able to do it. He was able to win that game. And then, you know, they finished that season somewhere in the 84 type range. The next year, win the national championship and win the national championship two out of the next three years. And so Urban Meyer put it out there like, hey, it almost happened to me. And then I was able to turn it around. Uh, I don't necessarily believe that the Bay Napiers is, you know, going to be the next Urban Meyer because even when Urban Meyer went to Florida, I knew that he had that capability based on what he did at Utah and Bowling Green. Yeah. I mean, the other example a lot of people use is Mike Norvell, you know, the one. Florida to be patient with uh, Billy Napier to see what he can build, you know, in the next three or four years. I think that I'll say this. I still have that, you know, degree of skepticism because he's been inconsistent so far with maybe a big win following, you know, by some humbling losses. But I'll say this. If he gets it going, this is probably definitely a moment to look back at, you know, as something that kind of got it started. Absolutely. That's where I'm at with it. I'm not saying that it is the turning moment. But it's a moment that for right now is keeping the hangman at bay. And if he does turn things around, this is definitely a watershed moment where things moved up uh, for the positive one. Yes, definitely. All right, Joe. Uh, you know, speaking of mo- things moving up to the positive, Colorado just keeps on having, uh, you know, week after week at the center of the college football universe. And last week, of course, you had uh, no relation to Mike Norvell, but uh, Coach Norvell of Colorado State just adding even more heat to the fire by telling Deion Sanders and saying on TV, calling him out, saying, uh, I'm an adult, and when I talk to other adults, I take my hat and my sunglasses off. And, of course, that caused you know just controversy everywhere. Everyone, including myself, was just banking on the fact that in what is the good rivalry that's not talked about very much between Colorado and Colorado State, that – Dion was just going to kill him, that it was going to be just a, a beat down. And Joe, I kind of think when I was watching that game and Colorado State had the lead and, you know, almost won, that maybe that was a calculated move by Norvell to talk trash about Dion and get his players maybe trying to play too hard because you kind of saw that Colorado was making uncanny mistakes and pressing a little bit. And as devious as it was, maybe that was a Machiavellian move by Coach Norvell to get this Colorado uh, group to to play a little haphazard and with too much emotion. No, it certainly certainly could be that case. Um, I mean, I have a couple of theories. I think you know that there's no doubt that he uses his motivational tactic. Also, you know, would love to. I never pulled up like the context of that interview. I've seen interviews though before where reporters will kind of you know, almost beg a coach or a player to kind of make uh, a critical point about somebody like, you know, where they might say something, for instance, hypothetically, oh, you know, what do you think about Dion? And then he kind of tries to avoid it. And it's like, no, what, what do you really think about Dion? You know, just kind of 
bait him to say something. So I'd be interested to see the context. But at the end of the day, though, you know, let's face it, this is an entertainment business. You know, it's college athletics, but, you know, it's really entertainment when it comes down to it. And so I've always been kind of conspiracy theorist to the, the degree that I feel like there's somebody, the powers that be, NCAA, the TV markets, whoever, that loves to encourage stories like this, quotes like this, that make the headlines. You know, it's like the, we'll talk about, you know, in the next segment, Lane Kiffin a couple of years ago, get your popcorn ready. Like, I think a lot of that is scripted and orchestrated. And so, it, but regardless of what it is, it was set up, you know, and it, it, it led to just an outstanding, exciting game that has kind of continued this wave of uh, Colorado craziness. I mean, Joe, what an unbelievable game. And for me to be able to stay away till two in the morning all the time to watch the end of it, it had to be an incredible game. Now, in all honesty, I fell asleep a couple times. My wife kept waking me up because I wanted to see the ending to it. And what an ending it was. I mean, Colorado's down by 11 points with, what, like five minutes left to go. They kicked the field goal. And then interesting decision here by Norvell with – with how aggressive he had been with him calling out Dion, with him obviously having his guys very well prepared to play in a game of, of this level of magnitude and emotion, he has a fourth and two opportunity when he's winning the game by eight points. And he's on Colorado's 40-yard line, which is a very natural place to go for it. But while his defense had played, you know, okay, they had still been shredded to an extent by Shadur Sanders in that high-flying Colorado offense. He chooses to punt it instead of going for it. And I kind of thought that when that happened, I was like, well, you just lost the game because that was his chance to win it. And I thought the way the offense was moving the ball, I thought he had a greater than 75% chance of picking up that first down. Yeah, I think you've got to do it right there. You know, this uh, Colorado defense that you know, doesn't have as much depth, they're going to get tired easily, you know, the way you're moving the football. And if you're going to win a game like this, you know, in that environment, you had to be – you know, willing to take some chances. Absolutely. I mean, I had the same criticism of, of Brian Horst in the 2021 Iron Bowl. He had a chance to go for one on fourth down and win the game against Alabama, and he chose to punt it. And when you're playing a team that's more talented than the year and you have a chance to win the game right there, you play to win, you don't play not to lose. Oh, no doubt. And so, of course, Shadur brings them 98 yards down the field. They score, they get the two-point conversion, and it goes into overtime, and they ultimately win. And the sad part about it is it was an excellent game. The build-up to it, incredible. You got the Rockets, the game day host. You got Little Wayne on on the the big noon kickoff and uh, rapping, leading the team out on the field, which I've never seen that before. Uh, and the big takeaway is the dirty hit by Blackburn on Travis Hunter, which that sadly is probably ended his Heisman Trophy campaign. Yeah, it does put a damper on that. I really, really hate to see that. You know, it was just awesome, like, what he was doing. It's kind of like, you know, like the football version of uh, Shohei Otani and Babe Ruth. And I loved it. But you know, hopefully at some point he can, you know, be be, be back. But, you know, I, I love the fact that, you know, this Colorado, you know, uh, influx of, uh, you know, energy has kind of continued at least another week. And uh, I think, you know, great atmosphere. And, and I saw a stat uh, this week that Colorado uh, had, I think, the lowest, and I couldn't believe this, the lowest projected uh, win total in uh, the FBS at like 2.7 coming into the season. They've already surpassed that. But quite frankly, with Dion and company and all the transfers 
in us in Sanders. Like, I, I honestly, I can't believe that that was actually the projection. I remember seeing that, and I thought that a very good bet would have been in taking the over on the win total because I slept seeing that at two and a half, and I was like, there's no way that Deion is going to go out there and win two games. Yeah, and, it's got to be worse for programs out there. Worse program. Oh, definitely. I mean, you know, like Rutgers. Um, yeah. It's, it's, it's three, though, ironically. Um, I thought that was kind of crazy, too, and that was I thought that was a great futures bet just to take the over on the win total for Colorado. Um, yeah. I felt that he handled the whole dirty hit on Travis Hunter very well. You know, it's kind of terrible. I mean, I knew people when they, they start caring about the guy, Travis Hunter. But apparently people found this this Blackburn player for uh for Colorado State's like address and his parents' address and his phone number and they posted it all on the internet and the guys received like hundreds of death threats and his family has too and uh, I mean, it's just crazy. I mean, it was it was a dirty hit. Uh, don't get me wrong, but I've seen a lot worse than that, including uh, in the college football playoff uh, semifinal with Georgia and Ohio State last year that wasn't even flagged. <laughs> like, I, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't one that would bring in the top ten most dirty hits I've ever seen. And I thought that Dion handled that very uh, professionally when he was, you know, he put it out there. Instead of Travis Hunter, they were like, "Listen, I mean, this is football." This happens. I'm not condoning it, but I don't. If you're a Colorado fan, you're putting that kind of stuff out there. We don't want you. That's terrible. Don't be doing that about another player and causing that kind yeah. of issue. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you got to make a statement like that, you know, to uh, to stop, you know, curtail that criticism because you know the way it is now with modern technology, you can literally have people, you know, in the stadium during the game, you're know, sending these just ridiculous messages out there. So yeah, you've you've definitely got to stop that. Absolutely. Uh. Joe, speaking of things we need to stop, we need to stop buying into the fact that uh, the Mississippi State was going to have a legit football team this year. I, you know, I never believed it to begin the season. There was a lot of people talking about, well, we got so many players coming back, and you know, Zach Arnett has is, is, is performed so well as as a coach in the interim position, and I thought he did handle the pole game very good last year. I thought that was the right decision by Mississippi State. But ultimately, Jeremy, you and I had talked about this. The complete change in offensive philosophy was going to come back and bite them. And, you know, they hadn't looked overly impressive in their first couple of weeks. Uh, they're not utilizing their best player, Will Rogers. And they faced a mad LSU team who, right now, I mean, you compare their performance versus Georgia's performance. LSU was like the best team in the SEC on Saturday. They really did. It was uh, building off of the narrative that you and I had predicted last weekend where you kind of see LSU rise back up to the top of the SEC West perception. And you see Mississippi State, just the um, issues that we've seen with their offense, um, you know, with Arnett um, kind of, in, in my opinion, defiantly um, changing up their offense despite the personnel that they have that's kind of, you know, allowed them to go from a team that should on paper be, you know, one of the most experienced teams in the SEC, if not the most experienced teams. And this should be a year where Rodgers, you know, is a fourth-year starter where they're actually making some noise, and it's kind of prevented that from ever starting. Yeah, and I think that I know you have philosophies, and obviously Arnett's been a very successful defensive coordinator and he wanted to get a complementary offensive coordinator. He wanted to have an offense that made his defense uh, easier to perform and not stress as much. 
But you gotta you gotta look at who your skilled players are, and you gotta tailor an offense around it. And Brad Bay was the wrong offensive coordinator hire based on the fact that you got Willie Rogers for at least the end of this season. I think you could have him for a whole another season. And he's the, he's he's one of the best quarterbacks in the SEC. And you have that, you need to use that. And guess what? If you think you're planning on being there for a while, maybe two years down the line, you can go ahead and you know get a different offensive coordinator. But you should have planned for the now. And the bottom line is, when everyone's thinking about what happened with Mike Leach, it is important that you have a solid season. You didn't have to have a great season, but you needed to at least go out and win six or seven games. And I'm worried about their ability to do that right now, Joe. Yeah, I have a lot of concerns, you know, and the other, other thing I'll say about it, you know, the, the parallel for me is, you know, the opposite of what State should have done. Like, I think about, like, in the NFL, the year after uh, the Rams won the Super Bowl with uh, Kurt Warner, you know, Dick Vermeil retired the first time, and they, uh, you know, still ran the same offense. I think they actually promoted the offense coordinator, uh, Michael Martz, uh, to the head coaching role, and it's not like they changed, you know, their offensive scheme. They're running still the greatest show on turf, still had a lot of success in the next couple of seasons. And to me, it would have been like them going to like a run-oriented offense that would have made no sense with the personnel they had. And I think that State should have, you know, taken a page out of that playbook and, like you said, brought in a coordinator that could fit this offense, and then maybe a couple of years down the road, uh, you know, Arnett could install his system. Yeah, and it's no coincidence that you lost people like Ron Wilson to Georgia and all these great receivers that knew that they were about to be not featured anymore. Guess what? If you had if you had made that promise to him that I'm gonna stick with this style of offense and you're gonna keep keep getting fed the rock um by Ray Rogers, maybe they wouldn't transfer. Mm-hmm. Right. But I'm gonna be fascinated next year to see where Will Rogers ends up. Yeah, me too. Because I think he's gonna transfer at the end of the season, and if not, that'd be a mistake. Definitely. And I think it'll be highly sought after. Oh, he's going to be big time in the transfer market. Shoot, he might be just moving about 60 miles east over to Tuscaloosa, which, speaking of Alabama right now, I mean, it would be worse to describe how terrible that performance was against South Florida last week. I, you know, it's sad we last week on the show as someone that's a huge Auburn fan and a big old fan and, you know, doesn't like Alabama but as a historian has watched Nick Saban for so many years, and I just thought that they would go out and kill South Florida. I mean, it, Joe, 70 to 7 wouldn't have shocked me. You know, something in that range. I thought they were going to put all of their anger, all of their frustration, and all their focus that they had lacked into that game and play an excellent football game. Instead, we saw maybe the worst offensive showing in the entire Nick Saban era against a substandard group of five football team. And the thing that really shocked me about it to begin with was why he benched Jalen Milrow. I know that he wasn't excellent against Texas, but he wasn't bad, and it, he certainly wasn't the reason they lost that game. No, I mean, he, to me, gives them, obviously, the best chance to win with everything that he can do with his ability to improvise and create plays when it breaks down. And, you know, there was some... Uh, conspiracies about whether or not he was suspended last week. I don't know. I felt like it definitely impacted the team. I felt like the morale of the team, they just weren't playing as hard. But regardless, I mean, that's still no excuse. I mean, they let a very average South Florida team hang in that game, you know, way too long. Uh, it was a very you know, kind of partisan Alabama crowd in the stands. It's not like, you know, it was a raucous environment. 
quite frankly, kind of a weird, you know, road trip for Alabama to go, you know, on the road like that. But at the end of the day, um, I kind of came away thinking that the way this uh, played out, I'm really kind of surprised that Alabama was even favored heading into this weekend. Yeah, I'm surprised they're favored in that game, too. I mean, after everything that happened, I mean, that just shows the cachet that Nick Saban has had and the struggles, frankly, that Lane Kiffin has had against Saban. I think those all feed into Alabama being favored. Uh, we'll talk more about that in our next episode. Um, but you look at the numbers, I think Tyler Buckner went 5 of 14. He was the one who got the start. Who, you know, that's Tommy Reese's boy. He brought him down with him from Notre Dame. And then, uh, you know, Ty Simpson didn't have much of a better showing. I think he ended up like five of nine, and none of them got a touchdown. I think it was all rushing touchdowns, and they win 17 to three. And you can say a win is a win, and it, it is. But when you're coming off a game like Texas, where you really needed to have a get right game, especially in advance of a big game against Ole Miss, this is a game that causes a lot more questions than it does answers. Well, absolutely. You have a lot of question marks. And one kind of common denominator that I'd be interested to get your thoughts on, I was thinking about it with this year's college football season through, you know, three weeks. I feel like a lot of the most talented teams out there all have something fascinating in common. They've all, for the most part, got an impactful transfer quarterback at the helm. Whereas you see Alabama, you see Clemson, you know, they're a, a lot of times going out there with an in-house quarterback or maybe an underwhelming transfer in the case of Alabama here. And so I, I can't help but wonder if that's causing part of the problem here. Um, and then also you, you just not seeing Alabama use the transfer portal enough for this specific team to fill some of their gaps. But, I mean, you have to think that Joe Miller has been there. I think this is his third year that he's been in Tuscaloosa. You got to see him in limited starts last year against Arkansas and A&M. You can see the inconsistencies there. And you knew Ty Simpson was young and, and inexperienced. And you would have thought that Nick Saban would have hit the ground running to get a better transfer quarterback, especially when, I mean, there was no, there was no shortage of excellent transfer quarterbacks out there. Sam Hartman, uh, 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 Levy, uh, uh, not Levy, uh, Leary, Dennis, Leary over at Kentucky. Um, you had uh, Spencer Sanders available. I mean, a lot of good transfer quarterbacks that were out there for the taking uh, going into the season. I mean, shoot, Peyton Thorne. Peyton Thorne looks better than than Murillo or Buckner at this at this point. And Saban didn't get any of them. You know, I think I think Ole right now has three guys that could start for Alabama. Yeah, I never felt like they were in the running for any of them either. Like it wasn't even considered on this. Yeah, it, it was strange. Um, and so it's a weird situation right here. I'm not willing to be here with the guys. Oh, the guys said that Saban's going to retire at the end of the season. But I will say this, and we'll tease this a lot uh, more in the next episode. This will this will be a story that will get out of control if they don't win on, Sunday, on Saturday. It could. It, it really could. Uh, Joe, speaking of transfer quarterbacks, I mentioned Peyton Thorne. Uh, for Auburn, I, I don't want to say how about this game because we're playing Sanford. Uh, but yet again, I found Peyton Thorne to be underwhelming. Uh, he played a little bit better. He showed some mobility with his legs. I didn't know he had. But he still threw two really puzzling interceptions, one of which he threw like into quadruple coverage in the end zone. In fact, both of his interceptions were in the end zone. And 
I'm going to need to see a lot from him this week, and he needs to have a lot of improvement because so far I've been I've been highly disappointed in him. Yeah, I mean that that's been kind of the the one unfortunate thing for Auburn's start. You know, you're undefeated, but you know you haven't seen the quarterback play that you expected, and I have not seen Hugh Freeze's imprint enough on this offense like I would have expected early on. Like I know it's still early, still plenty of time, you know, to uh, get some of these. Um, you know, cobwebs shaking off and, and get a better rhythm, but you you would expect to have, you know, a quarterback throwing at least for 200 yards a game under Hugh Freeze. Yeah, absolutely. And I was also expecting the running game to be better. I mean, this is looking more like the running game that he had at Ole Miss, which is not very good. And he has an incredible stable of backs with Jarquez Hunter, Demory Olsen, Jeremiah Cobb, and Brian Batty, and none of them got over 40 yards in that game last week. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um. Joe, uh, you know, we've had a lot of interesting games that, that happened last week. Uh, Arkansas was one that kind of fascinated me. They got out to a 14 to nothing lead against uh, BYU. BYU had been a team that had not been very impressive this year, especially on the offensive side of the ball. And yet BYU comes back and wins a huge game on the road. And I think a really devastating loss for Arkansas, who was a team that a lot of people had as a dark horse SEC West team based on them probably having the best combo of quarterback and starting running back with KJ Jefferson and Rocket Sanders. And I know they didn't have Rocket Sanders last week. But that was a really disappointing loss, especially considering they wiped right the floor of BYU last year. Yeah, I mean, very, you know, uh, disappointing loss for them. Um, I think that, you know, similar to Mississippi State, you would think, you know, with an experienced quarterback, great running back, you know, this would be your year in a kind of an up-and-down SEC West for the most part where you might be competitive. But if you're out there losing to BYU, I think a lot of Arkansas fans are questioning how many SEC wins are they actually going to get this year. Oh, definitely. Um, Joe, we had two players of the week in the SEC last week. Uh, actually, three of them. I think two of them are the same team. But I did want to mention, going back to the LSU game very briefly, what a game by Malik Neighbors, right? I think he had 21 catches for over 200 yards and three touchdowns. Just excellent numbers on his part. Uh, yeah, okay, so he was he was 13 catches on 13 passes, and he had 239 yards, which was the fourth most in LSU history, and he caught every pass that was thrown to him. I think Neighbors almost secured himself a first-round draft pick spot against Mississippi State last week. Yeah, I mean, he just kind of continued that long line of uh, receivers at LSU over the last few years. That's right. And Joe, another receiver that really showed out, he's someone that we knew had a lot of talent. Maybe he didn't have enough talent around him last year to show out. He was someone that I thought probably was going to hit the transfer portal. But good on Eli Drinkowitz for holding on to him. Uh, Luther Burden looked amazing against Kansas State. A huge win for, you know, uh, Eli Drinkowitz, especially the way it happened. Uh, But Luther Burden showed his size, his physicality, uh, had over 100 yards receiving. And more impressive than the one where he went up and got a 50-50 ball to get a touchdown was the one that threw that out route to him. He just ran past everybody and bulldozed his way into the end zone. I mean, he was like a, an Alabama receiver back in the day when they kind of did that play. And, and Luther Burton is an impressive wide receiver. Yeah, really good. You know, you think about, um, was it Doriel uh, Green Beckham, who was there about nine or ten years ago, it was really solid. Um, but, yeah, I think that Missouri has been uh, obviously the, the best story in the SEC East. You know, they've kind of been that surprise team. 
Yeah, I mean, and Joe, right now, they have the most impressive non-conference win in the SEC this season. Uh, beating Kansas State at home, I didn't think there was any way they would win this game. And Joe, it makes it even more exciting. I mean, Kansas State, obviously, they won the Big 12 last year. They were the only regular season loss for TCU. Um, you know, Kansas State had a lot of thoughts of maybe winning the Big 12 this year. Maybe they still can. Uh, the way they won the game with what appeared to be just straight up coaching malpractice by Eli Drinkowitz. I, I mean, you saw the whole last couple minutes there was delay games and false starts galore. And it seemed like both coaches just kind of lost control of their team and their offense coordinators. I don't know what they were doing. Maybe they were playing Tetris on their phone, but they weren't paying attention. Um, you know, Missouri's driving. They have a 56-yard field goal. There's an inexplicable delay game. And I knew that Dre, uh, that, that Nevis was an amazing kicker because I remember last year when they played Auburn, there was all the stats thrown out about the thicker kicker and how he hadn't missed a kick in like two seasons, and he never missed a kick inside of 20 yards. And, of course, he missed the one against Auburn. And so I was like, there he is going out for 61 yarder. And I told my wife, I was like, this dude can actually make this. I mean, he's got an amazing leg. But what made it even more insane is that it was in the pouring rain. I mean, there had been a decent amount of rain in that game. And that dude just drilled it. And it suddenly went from Eli Drinkowitz being a coach who didn't know how to manage a clock in the last few minutes of the game to pull a golden opportunity to one who has the most impressive win of the year in the SEC. Yeah, I mean, how about that? Who would have expected that under the circumstances? And I think that the other uh, footnote I, I would say is an observation is I feel like this year – I've seen more um, kicks from a greater distance in college football than I feel like I've ever seen. Like, I feel like, you know, you see it with more regular occurrence in the NFL, a lot of kicks, you know, like from 60 yards or the high 50s, but I feel like I'm seeing it with much more regularity regularity now in college. Absolutely. I mean, this was, a, you know, our good drink was this. He knew he had a player that could do that, and he gave him the opportunity to show it off. And that was just a highly impressive kick. And I think it may have been good from 70 yards. I mean, it wasn't even close. And, I mean, the kicker the kicker now, I think he's got a chance to be bigger than Dicker the kicker from Texas in terms of, like, just his popularity. And how often do you get to see the kicker being probably the most recognizable player on the team? And I think right now – uh, a lot of people could pick out Mevis if he's walking around campus or, or walking out in public, but not many people could pick out Brady Cook or, or Luther Burton or any other for a Missouri player. Yeah, that, that's true. You had a roster coming into the season. It'd be hard to, you know, name a who's who of that roster. Absolutely. But, yeah, Missouri's undefeated right now uh, with how bad everybody else except for Georgia is looking in the East. Maybe that's a team to watch out for. Um, Jake, big thing on Georgia – they came out pretty flat against South Carolina. I thought South Carolina had a very good plan to begin the game. Uh, Spencer Rattler played excellent throughout, even with Georgia, you know, unsurprisingly getting great pass rush on him. Um, I do think that that was an impressive victory for Georgia and the way they came out in the second half. And without scoring any touchdowns in the first half, they scored three touchdowns in the second half and give up no points. And I thought that was, you know, Georgia needed a wake-up call and they responded the way that a good team does when it gets punched in the mouth. Yeah, I mean, they definitely did. You know, South Carolina, like you alluded to, had a great game plan coming into it. And uh, I think that, though, at the end of the day, though, um, I still have, you know, long-term concerns more with Georgia. I still don't think their schedule, you know, represents much of a challenge in the regular season. But 
I'm really going to be interested to see how they evolve as the season goes on, how much better their offense improves or regresses, because I think that's going to go a long way to see how they would fare in what you know could be a potential uh, shootout against you know some of these other playoff teams that are going to have um, a high flying quarterback. Absolutely. I mean, I think Carson Beck so far. Uh, he had a lot of hype as, as a five-star. Everybody's like, this guy's so much better than Stetson Bennett. It, he looks to be more of a game manager than Stetson Bennett has. And while he's not making any mistakes, he hasn't done anything spectacular. So I'm interested to see how he performs. He's given me like a lot of an A.J. McCarron-type vibe the first year that he was Alabama starting quarterback, which A.J. made the plays when he mattered, and ultimately they won the national championship, and he got better each season he was there. But he was a little bit of a, a liability and not um, not quite confident with himself that first season he was a starter for Bama. Yeah, and, and you know what I mean. Like, you know, there's going to be a game probably where Beck has to throw it like 40 times. And I want to know what that looks like. I want to see what that looks like. I do too. And, you know, the Georgia has got a little bit the same problem the Saints do. I mean, they're very thin at running back, which is crazy to say for Georgia, but they've had so many injuries there's definitely going to be a game where Peck's going to be the one that's going to be responsible for them winning or losing. Definitely. All right, Jordan, when we come back, we're going to talk about some wins and losses that are going to happen this weekend and what may be the greatest college football weekend in recent memory with, what, five ranked-on-ranked matchups. Probably the best of the weekend for the remainder of this year. I'm really looking forward to talking about that and, of course, watching it. Uh, we're looking forward to more of y'all listening to the show and checking it out. You can follow us on Twitter at DJ Sports Show. And, of course, we're also on Instagram, the Dan and Joe Sports Show Instagram, and our Spotify. You can listen to all of our episodes there. You can search there and subscribe. And, of course, uh, subscribe to our YouTube page, the Dan and Joe Sports Show YouTube page. And, as always, I'm Dan. And I'm Joe.